Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On Wednesday, July 20th, the United States House of Representatives Energy and Commerce Committee held a markup that included H.R. 8152, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which is touted as the first comprehensive national privacy legislation with bipartisan support. Here is Representative Frank Pallone, a Democrat from New Jersey and the chairman of the committee, opening the session. And then finally, we'll conclude with the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. That's the data privacy legislation that I already mentioned. And that protects Americans from data practices that undermine their privacy and security online. This bill is needed to limit the excesses of big tech and ensure all Americans can safely navigate the digital world. It includes a strong national standard using a data minimization framework to help ensure companies are limited in what they collect process, and transfer in the first place. This bill protects children by prohibiting companies, including social media platforms, from targeting kids with harmful advertising. A new youth privacy and marketing division at the FTC (coughs) will have the sole mission of protecting young people and will be staffed with experts in youth development. The privacy data, the data privacy legislation will also protect women in abusive relationships by giving them control over their personal information limiting the data available for their aggressors to exploit, and regulating shady data brokers that too often provide the means to carry out this type of abuse. The bill also ensures that protected classes, including people of color, are not discriminated against in trying to find housing, applying for a loan, looking for a job, or being offered any goods and services. And the bill is our best hope, in my opinion, at protecting Americans' privacy and data security while also providing certainty to American businesses. And I just want to thank, I can't thank enough, uh, our ranking member, Kathy Rogers, uh, Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee Chair, Jan Schakowsky, who's been working on this for years, and Subcommittee Ranking Member Villarakis as well for their, all three of their unwavering commitment to getting us to this markup today. And I also commend each of our members for their contributions and their feedback, which I think almost every member has had some as we work through the committee process. To discuss the bill and its prospects in detail, I spoke with two experts on tech policy and civil rights issues. Uh, I'm Nora Benavidez. I uh, am Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. I'm also a faculty associate at the Cronkite Institute at Arizona State University, where I teach on free expression in the digital age. I'm Justin Brookman. I'm Director of Technology Policy for Consumer Reports, and I'm based in D.C. So I thank you both for joining me. We're going to talk today about this privacy bill that is coursing its way potentially to passage in in Congress. Um, The Washington Post the other day called it a watershed and a grand bargain. Um, It is apparently the first time a federal consumer privacy bill has achieved escape velocity, made it out of committee. Two questions in one. Why is it taking us this long to get here, and what made this possible in this Congress? Nora, I'll put that to you to start. What made this possible? Well, 
I mean, first, you know, as I was sitting watching the 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 bill get a vote um, a few days ago, I had goosebumps all over. I almost started crying. I was so excited and moved. I think a number of factors have propelled us here, not the least of which is the urgency that many Democrats feel that the window is narrowing to move meaningful legislation on civil rights issues. But it's taken almost two decades to get us here. And that is for so many reasons, you know, the the partisanship we've seen in Congress, the flipping of our, you know, House and Senate, and in many ways, just the lack of broader awareness and urgency on the issue of privacy and what our data really means, what it means to control how our data is used. Too often that conversation is seen as uh, something niche, something that my colleague Justin uh, might be a wonderful expert on, but that lay people really don't understand and then is not prioritized by members. Justin, do you have a similar take? Yeah, I mean, I think the hesitancy to regulate, I mean, I think, you know, for a while, like everyone thought, Hey, the internet's awesome, right? And like the, in the in the nineteen uh, in the nineties, Clinton like famously said, like don't touch the internet. <laughs> it's awesome. Let's let's take off. People got comfortable with like online banking and social networking, and it was cool. And then I think starting in like the twenty tens, people are starting like, wait a second, there there are some bad things about the internet. Um, and I think you've seen like consumer sentiment surveys have kind of gotten like increasingly um, skeptical about it. And then you had the twenty sixteen election. And so then, you know, over time, I think first the Democrats got more comfortable saying, yeah, we should have laws around privacy and lots of other things, too. And, you know, the tr- traditionally more regulatory. And then I think really in the last few years, I think you've seen Republicans then kind of be like, you know what? Yeah, we we want to regulate these companies, too. They see the Silicon Valley companies as liberal. They're worried about um, a bias. You're seeing laws pass at the state level and like Florida and Texas around social networking and um, including like private rights of action, right? Famously, historically, uh, Republicans like, no, no private rights of action. And now we're like, yeah, we let, let people sue Google. That's a bad company. So I think um, you, you you have seen like a more, um, everyone's agreeing that what's going on online is is way too much. There is bipartisan consensus that something needs to happen. I think Nora is right. Like, I think a lot of the Democrats are like, this is our kind of last chance. Like there's widespread perception that they're going to lose at least one House of Congress. I will say, I mean, I think, the staff, um, I think, actually take really play, plays a key role here. Individuals, um, the staff have been putting in the work in ways I have never seen before. Um, I, I got like I got invited to like a six thirty a.m. conference call without like without any degree of self awareness because I think they were working like <laughs> like twenty hours a day, and I, I think they really deserve a lot of credit for like getting past like issues or like there's like there's like a hundred things you need to fix. And they actually like marched through and did did a ton of them. And so I think they deserve like a lot of personal credit for what's happened here. Let's talk just a little bit about what this bill does. 70% of privacy bills all kind of look the same, right? They have like uh, access rights and deletion rights and maybe correction rights. And this has correction rights. They have data security obligations. Um, the trickiest thing is what companies, what, what the law does around secondary use, right? Like the primary use we kind of get, I go to Amazon, I buy stuff and they, process it and they charge my credit card and they give my information to FedEx to bring it to me. And that's all like directly in, in service of what I asked for. And that's kind of, that's fine. It's like all the other stuff, like the sharing data with data brokers um, or for targeted advertising that like the law really needs to get to. And there's usually like three basic ways you can deal with that. You can like ban it. You can say this is like super illegal. Um, you can like require opt-in consent for it. Um, you have to, you know, someone has to click okay for them to do the extra stuff. 
or you can have opt out rights. And like, you know, you can go out of your way to say, no, don't do that. And like, they all have their flaws, I think. And, and, and they're, it's tricky. It was really hard. This is a really hard issue to get to. And, and this bill has had like three different versions and each one does it in really actually very different ways. The way they ended up, I think is actually probably the strongest that I've seen. Like they actually do prohibit, straight prohibit most um, secondary use. And they have some carve outs for things that are allowed and, and some targeted advertising, but like most targeted advertising, I think is, is actually straight prohibited. Um, and they have like some opt out rights for the extra stuff, but, and then that's like, again, that's stronger than we've seen in Europe. That's stronger certainly than we've seen at the state level. The one extra piece, I'll, and then I'll let, let Nora speak, um, that we see in this bill that we've not seen in other bills are civil rights protections. So section 207 has like new language that we haven't seen in, in, in other bills um, that have, you know, that prohibit um, discriminatory treatment with personal information, um, which again is a, is a huge win that we haven't seen, I certainly haven't seen bipartisan support for and haven't seen in privacy bills otherwise. Nora, that's probably a good place to bring in your interests. Sure. You know, I, I often love taking a step back. I think Justin, you know this probably about me. I sort of look at this from what the layperson might consider. And when the bill was first introduced, it was a discussion draft and it was about 50 or so pages, which seems great, right? It's like, let's really dig into this. Um, The first round of amendments put it at 120 pages. And uh, as Justin said, it was significantly different. Um, And then the newest set of amendments have also significantly altered what the bill does. So just before we even get into any of the substance, we're dealing with a fast-tracked process in which a really broad set of experts have come in to weigh in and urge members and staff on certain issues. And it has been tremendous from a procedural uh, perspective to watch that the bill has really gotten refined. And the reason I mentioned that before getting into substance is that this is, I believe, the way the legislative process should be. It should be staffers, experts, civil society coming together to come up with something that if we have this lump of clay and there is an issue that broadly has support that privacy and civil rights should be protected, that our data is somehow being used and many people do not understand what the bounds of that look like, that that's an issue for Congress to take up. And it's just been really exciting to watch the kind of refining and refining and refining. So I say that before getting into substance so that for the listeners that are less in the weeds, this has been really kind of a long time coming. And then the process over the last month and a half or so has really been fast tracked with the intent to make this as strong and as comprehensive as possible. First and foremost, you know, I begin because of my background as a civil rights lawyer thinking about the civil rights protections uh, because they are so powerful. The bill would prohibit data collection, use, selling, and sharing in any way that violates people's civil rights. That includes preventing companies from collecting, processing, and then particularly transferring our data in ways that might discriminate based on race. Uh, ethnicity, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, disability. This is huge for the digital era and for our digital civil rights. 
it would also then stop collection of certain and use of certain data, what is typically now referred to as sensitive data. And that's been a big piece of the conversation is what is included in sensitive data, like our social security numbers, our genetic information, our biometric information, our precise geolocation. And so that has been one of the major pieces of discussion around what's sensitive data, what isn't sensitive data. And the bill attempts to take on that kind of uh, interruption to prevent collection and use of certain sensitive data. The other piece I'll mention uh, is around the FTC's authority and that, you know, as we look out now at the landscape of what can be done to rein in discriminatory data practices, the FTC has a role to play. Um, my organization, Free Press, is excited about the potential for the FTC to take on a rulemaking to really dig into what kinds of bounds there should be for consumer protection in the digital and certainly in the data protection landscape. And so this bill would strengthen FTC enforcement and provide them more authority to take on those types of issues. One final piece that I think sometimes gets overlooked, but I, I always try to mention it, is the, the issue of language. It, perhaps mundane, perhaps too granular, but one of the more interesting aspects that I'm excited about is that the, the bill would require companies to make privacy policies and notices available in each language in which they provide a product or service. The reason I mention that is because so often when we talk about uh, civil rights, we, we're talking in English. We know that our social media companies devote most of their resourcing to English issues, uh, English content. We so rarely talk about some of the asymmetries when it comes to language online, um, even this podcast being in English. And so the idea that users in other languages, um, however difficult it might be for them, but would have access to the privacy policies that inform all of their experiences on a platform or service are incredibly important steps to Towards better protections, not just for race, ethnicity, but also on the basis of language. I want to talk a little bit about just maybe the high level theory in this bill about how to deal with data. Uh, Sarah Collins at Public Knowledge Senior Policy Council there uh, pointed out that one of the reasons she was excited about it is that it takes a, a quote, data minimization first approach. Justin, would you characterize it that way? Yeah, I think it does. And I think that that's what you know, we've asked for that for years, that it should take a data. Again, data processing should just be limited to like what is in service of what I've asked for. Um, yeah, I think for a bunch of years, you know, advocacy groups tended to ask for like opt-in, like get my permission first. Um, then I think we've seen in response to GDPR, the, the e-privacy directive, like that's kind of annoying, like having to click okay, like for every single thing, like that's not that's not good. And then like, you know, companies tended to want opt-outs, but those are really hard to use. They just kind of scroll to the bottom of each page and find like <laughs> the opt-out. Um, that's really difficult to use. But, you know, the data minimization framework, and that's like section 101, the first thing in this bill says, you can only do stuff that that's in direct service of what the consumer asks for. And then there's a carve out in like, I think 101B that says, here's, but here's the exceptions. And there probably need to be some exceptions. You need to be able to do analytics, some basic, you know, product improvement, count accounting, right? And so that's like where the, the meat is, you know, what, okay, what extra stuff is allowed? And like, they do ex exclude targeted advertising and they say certain targeted advertising is allowed. Okay. And we're going to subject, uh, subject that to, to opt-outs. 
but again, like other parts of the bill actually like prohibit their use of like cross-site data for targeted advertising. So it's actually just a pretty limited uh, scope of things. But overall, that framework is great. The conversation has evolved beyond what we call notice and choice, like people like having to make informed decisions all time. Like I don't, no one wants to make privacy decisions like all the time. <laughs> they just want it to work and, and to trust that it works. And I think that this bill was, was written with that in mind. You know, there were concessions on both sides to get to this point. There were certainly concessions even in the discussion on amendments the other day. Uh, What did Republicans want? What did they get? What did they concede? And same for Democrats. Well, one of the big things that I think took up quite a bit of the debate uh, earlier this week during the markup process was the question of preemption. Uh, And that was an amendment that uh, Representative Eshoo introduced. And in its current version, let's I can back up and describe some of the, the context for what happened during that. But as it ended up, the amendment was uh, voted down. And so in its current version, the ADPPA would preempt most comprehensive state privacy laws and preserve many others. So states could retain their ability to pass future laws that would do any number of things, you know, limit the collection and use of certain data, regulate other activities or sectors. That could include things like facial recognition data, um, the kinds of activities such as wiretapping. But generally what was discussed this week was the question of how will California's law fare and can it, is it stronger than the federal law that's currently up for debate? And that took up a significant portion of Um, the conversation, you know, on Wednesday. And ultimately, I think many of the California representatives just voiced incredible concern for what would happen to the CPRA. And so ultimately, there's been quite a bit of debate now in the days that have followed, which has only been a couple. But I think that the federal bill is stronger and allows for Um, greater protections when it comes to the California bill. And so the issue of preemption is one that, despite having been taking up a lot of oxygen, is one that was necessary to go through. Yeah, it wasn't a very partisan hearing or or markup. Um, I mean, again, the the bill eventually passed 53 to 2, but, you know, there are like eight amendments, and I think six of them were, were, were bipartisan. And, and were relatively minor fixes. Um, I think uh, I think Nora's right. Like the, the um, preemption is probably the, the biggest remaining ask for for Democrats and for some civil society groups. Um, you know, this law, like Congress doesn't do doesn't act very often. If the law this law gets passed, like and the preempts the states, then like the law will be frozen for for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, the states have been more nimble and able to pass um, laws to, to to react to stuff. And so I think it's, and it's, it's a fair concern. And so that Representative Eshoo had her amendment um, that, that um, did not pass. And then on the on the Republican side, I think there's still concerns around private enforcement. Uh, I think the one amendment that was, I think, I think withdrawn um, was around like, let, let's just let the FTC enforce and not have like, you know, and, and not have other, other states enforcing or the new California agency. And there, I think there's still some hesitancy around the role of private suits and whether they'll be weaponized or abused to just you know take take money from companies and that not actually make things better for consumers. But again, that was that was that was all not a lot of the hearing. Most most of the hearing was like talking about privacy is important and that this is the this is a good bill. Um, there was really remarkably little you know talk. If this if this market had been like five ten years ago, there would be concern about 
you know, targeted advertising is like the, the lifeblood of the internet and we need, we need our targeted ads, but <laughs> no one's saying that anymore. Um, like there, there does seem to be bipartisan agreement that, you know, that people don't, don't want their data collected and shared and sold all the time. Uh, and that privacy rules really should rein that in. And, you know, we shouldn't buy these arguments that, you know, you're not going to get free content anymore unless you're allowed, if you're, we allow like hundreds of companies to watch everything we do. Um, that bargain is no longer on the table. Um, so I was really surprised by how little disagreement there, were, there was on the actual substance of the bill. So while lawmakers might not be saying anything about the merits of targeted advertising, the Association of National Advertisers uh, did release a statement opposing this bill um, since it would, quote, prohibit companies from collecting and using basic demographic and online activity data for typical and responsible advertising purposes, unquote. I have to say I've been somewhat surprised not to see more industry statements uh, as of yet. Do we think they're sort of keeping their powder dry or what do you expect to see with regard to opposition? Oh, I I am not in the business of reading tea leaves, (laughs) Um, nor would I want to speculate. I mean, I think you're right that we have not heard a whole lot from industry folks. The bill is having been voted, and I love that Justin reminded us the the majority vote here, that 53 to 2 is just huge (laughs) um, and and really significant. But as it moves from committee to the full house, there is a question of what will happen next. And then there's always the question of what the Senate companion will look like and what that process is. Again, I don't want to speculate, but there's still quite a bit of runway time for voices to come forward. What I hope more than anything is that given the broad bipartisan support we saw from the committee this week, that that will then continue. And we've already seen bipartisan support from others on the bill. So I hope what that means is it can be fast tracked through debate and further discussion. I mean, I would agree with you, Justin, that I was, I'm surprised I haven't seen more industry outcry on this, because again, this, this is more stringent than we've seen uh, at the state level, um, where we've seen a lot of hue and cry is, I think it's, it's, I would argue that a lot of it is stronger than we've seen in Europe or anywhere else. Um, And so again, like this bill was, was changed radically and and it it wasn't until like Tuesday, the text came out and then it was, it was voted on Wednesday. Um, And so maybe the companies couldn't get it together, but I have been surprised by, by, you know, we haven't seen, you know, um, crying out that, you know, this is going to you know, end the internet or, or, or the outcry in general. I will say like the, the most cynical part of me would say, you know, there, there are some companies who, who like this process as a distraction from the competition bills that are, that, you know, have been out there for a couple of years that are fairly vetted, that are waiting for a vote in the Senate. And so I, I, you have seen some public statements from Tim Cook, from the CEO of Alphabet, um, from, from others saying like, wow, we support the, the, the bipartisan privacy process. This is great. Um, similarly, like, you know, the, the Chamber, of Progr- uh, Chamber of Progress, right, which is a, a, an industry group um, that is wildly opposing, <laughs> like spending all the resources opposing these bills. We're saying nice things about the privacy process. Again, this is before it got much stronger, saying like, wow, people really care about privacy. And so there is, I think there is some cynical, like, let's invest in this Hail Mary privacy process that, again, like the the, the headwinds are against it, right? It's going to be really hard to pass it because it's being drafted so quickly. And like, there's only so much legislative calendar left, whereas the competition bills are, are pretty vetted and ready to go. 
that said, like this process has been more successful than a lot of people expected, including myself. Um, and the fact that we did get a very strong vote on a very strong bill in the House and that maybe maybe that'll make some folks re- recalculate. Or, and then, or maybe it's just some folks just see the writing on the wall, right? I mean, we're seeing Apple take steps to like get rid of cookies. Google's saying we're get, uh, getting rid of cookies, like take, uh, taking all these steps to get rid of tracking. I think a lot of people are aware that the data free for all is going away, that people care about this and like one way or another is going to go away. And then maybe the just having one national standard instead of having to worry about what California is going to do, maybe, maybe preemption is worth it for them. And so they're not going to raise a hue and cry. Again, because the bill got much stronger, actually, I, I expect the hue and cry to come, but, but we surprisingly haven't heard a lot of it yet. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Now, back to the discussion with Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press, and Justin Brookman, Director of Technology Policy for Consumer Reports. There was one morning consult poll that suggested that more than 80% of voters support the provisions in this proposed bill, so perhaps general public support for the ideas that are represented in this text is one of the reasons why there's been less outcry. But but let's think a little bit, I mean, Nora, you were mentioning uh, earlier kind of the perspective of, you know, real people, uh, quote unquote, uh, what will change for them when or if this uh, legislation becomes law? What would happen on the internet? What would be different about the experience we have of engaging with corporations and other entities? Well, I I thought Wired did a good piece just yesterday on some of the ad targeting issues, which might be one of the first most obvious ways people experience a change. Um, And they had a good example because of how uh, just practical it was, which was if you shop for shoes on Target and how that type of search will change. Because frankly, as Justin mentioned, you know, the ad targeting piece is significant here in the bill. And if it does become law in its current iteration, I want to be clear, um, a few things would happen. From now on, it would be that if you shop for shoes, let's say, or bath mats, Target, that private company, could still use that information to show you similar content, ads for the types of things when you're on another site. So... That's one piece that would remain. What wouldn't be able to happen, though, is for that to then be matching your shopping history with everything else you do online and on your phone. The kind of thing where you often feel, I've had this experience, where I see ads for things that I've talked about with people because potentially they, in the similar vicinity as me, were searching for something online. Um, And so... What now would not happen is the kind of randomized, what feel random and just like psychic ways that you see ads on different websites based on your activity from your phone. Things that maybe you've never even told your phone or search engines that you've wanted. That is a major significant shift for everyday people. 
The other thing that would be significant is what companies like Meta, Facebook, Google could do. They would essentially not be able to place trackers on you for every site or app that you are using to build a profile of you for their advertising purposes. That until now has been such a common practice and frankly, a form of discrimination that we have been tracking at Free Press and with other partners that I think just day in, day out will really shift the kinds of ad and other content experiences people have. There are so many other things that will happen that will shift for people. Um, As I mentioned, the issue of language, that when they look into privacy policies, they can see that in the language in which they're using a product or service. And then there is something that we actually have not spoken about today, which is the private right of action. And I'd also love to hear Justin's thoughts on that, because even because the bill is so big, I suddenly laughed to myself that we haven't even gotten to this other section of the bill, which has gone through a lot of discussion, um, setting up a private right of action for people to go to court for violations where they feel they have been discriminated against or otherwise their data privacy has been violated. Yeah, I think that's all right. I mean, I think the overall goal, I think what most people would hopefully notice uh, was that is that the web or surfing online or using apps would become more private and less annoying, right? Like that again, like you know, the companies can't share data amongst about what you're doing. The shoes you're looking at at Target can't follow you around the internet. And you're also not subjected to constant choices. You're not forced to like, <laughs> you know, agree to cookies every single page you go to. Uh, you don't have to, you know, consent to anything because cons- consent is taken out of the picture. Um, the data minimization framework says just use data in, in the service of what the person asked for. Um, you know, and hopefully that's the way it does work in practice. I mean, you know, GDPR was designed to do some of this, but the way it was written led to consent fatigue and, and, and an annoying experience. This is written in reaction to that that this is the intent. Um, but obviously, you know, a lot of these companies are who rely upon tracking are going to, you know, just go kicking and screaming. They're going to do everything they can to try to find ways to track, to try to find loopholes. We saw this with the CCPA, the California law that's, you know, that, that allowed people to opt out of selling their data and the companies adopted, you know, these tendentious interpretations to say, well, we're not selling your data. We're selling ad space and we're giving the data away. And therefore the law doesn't apply to us. Um, and so they're, they're going to look for any possible loophole they can um, to try to keep doing what they've been doing for the last 20 years. Um, but certainly the goal, and I think, and I think this is, written more tightly than some of the other other laws would be, again, to make things more private, less annoying. You, you, there are other rights you have, you, you can access if you want. You can access your data. You can, you can delete certain data. There'll be more accessible privacy policies. But I think for most people, they're not going to want to have to deal with that. Like, I don't, I don't want people to read privacy policies. That's, that's, that's a depressing end result. Um, I don't like reading privacy policies, and that is my job. Um, people shouldn't have to try to make privacy choices. Um, so I think for most people, it should just hopefully just work better. Um, you know, Nora mentioned that there is private enforcement in here, and there's a lot of debate about whether the private enforcement is strong enough. And like, you know, they, there are definitely a lot of hoops you need to jump through, and it's delayed for a couple of years. Years. And you know, again, this is the thing we're, we're going to find out. Does it work actually as intended? But it should introduce more accountability. Again, I don't think most people should have to try to go sue Meta when something happens. But I think it'll it'll be available as uh, as an alternative to to FTC enforcement. That's actually a, a you know, will FTC enforcement be enough? The FTC today has like 
50 lawyers working on all the privacy issues. And, and this bill gives them a ton more responsibilities. They have to, you know, they enforce a lot more laws. Um, they have to consider safe harbor programs. They have to set up an office of like business mentoring. Um, they have to do rulemaking. The bill says like, I think section 406 says like Congress is authorized to give them more money, but it doesn't actually give them more money. <laughs> That's like a separate conversation. They're going to need a ton more money, even setting aside private enforcement, they're going to need a ton more money to actually implement this bill. Um, but even then, like I think FTC can't do everything. So I think private private enforcement will, I think, actually help put the fear of God into companies to make sure that they aren't trying to exploit loopholes that maybe really aren't there. So I do want to spend maybe just a second longer on enforcement. I mean, one of the critiques of GDPR, of course, is that enforcement's been lacking despite the law being in place for for some time. Are the pieces really in place here? I mean, being cynical, perhaps another reason companies may be less concerned perhaps about this is that they know there won't be many more cops on the beat than there are now. Yeah, I mean, with GDPR, I mean, like the tax is quite strong on enforcement. Like you can get up to like 5% of global revenues like for, for violations. There just hasn't been the will from, from, from enforcers. And I think that's like, that is a cultural thing to somewhat. My, my brother-in-law is French and he says there's no French word for enforce. <laughs> they, 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 they pass laws, but they did not have a great um, tradition of actually enforcing them and, and holding companies accountable. Where I think the United States is different. I think the FTC has had weaker laws for the last, you know, since, since going back to the 90s. But I think they've been more aggressive in enforcing it. And so I think I, I think they will enforce it. I think they'll be more likely to enforce it than than European regulators. But again, they, they currently only have 50 attorneys today. You know, I think they will probably get more. And I think there is will to give them more. There's not been a lot of active discussions that, I, that I'm aware of that must they, they probably have been. But I've not seen a lot of public discussions about how much more do we give them? Do we give them 100 attorneys, 1,000 attorneys? And I can imagine the conversation, like there are orders of magnitude <laughs> that, that, they, that they could go. And, and I don't know what is likely to net out. And again, like we, we're seeing with, with, you know, with Chair Khan, who I think has evinced a, a desire to be more aggressive and I think has brought some more aggressive privacy cases. If she did have five times as many attorneys, and again, a, a much stronger law, an ability to get penalties, I think the FTC could be a lot more effective. There has been historically a lot of criticism that the FTC has not been as aggressive as they could be, including from, from Chair Khan. But they've also been like deliberately hamstrung by Congress by not giving them the authority to do anything. And sometimes when they've tried to be aggressive on cases, they've either lost, like in some like the, the, the competition cases, or they've been called out before Congress for going after small businesses. I mean, I remember a few years ago, there's a, a hearing on, on LabMD, which is the company that had like demonstrably bad security practices, but they got they yelled at the FTC for why are you going after this this poor little small business? Um, and so they've not been set up to succeed. Um, so I think they, they will be given tools that, that I think will help and will really matter. But I do think private enforcement is going to have to play a role as well. You know, as we were talking about the preemption issue and that there's the potential for, or at one time, some concern that ADPPA wasn't strong enough, um, that potentially California or other states might provide stronger protections the the byproduct, the result would be essentially a kind of Swiss cheese of protections. I think we could potentially in a cynical world see a similar Swiss cheese um, effect when it comes to enforcement. If we have state attorney generals that are in certain places more robustly enforcing this than in other places. 
And we've seen this as just a phenomenon in the U.S. in every every policy issue, um, the sort of like picking and choosing where some states might have more robust protections, might narrow basic rights. But in my cynical view, which is not my typical state of being, uh, you know, I think that is one other path that we might see, which is if it in its current form were to become law, that we could be seeing certain states that are providing more robust enforcement actions. Um, both through the private uh, enforcement and then uh, state attorney generals. Nora, I want to just take a quick detour also to think about other policy dominoes that might fall. And there was another hearing this week in Congress um, in the House Judiciary Committee around one of the major uh, or I guess one of the major categories of customers for Americans' personal uh, data, which is government agencies at all levels. And it was kind of a terrifying hearing. There was a lot of talk about uh, the extent to which various government agencies, whether it's the DOD or the CIA or the you know IRS or uh, DHS and its various uh, bits and pieces, acquire so much information uh, on the open market that they wouldn't be able to get themselves, you know, without that recourse. Yeah, I don't know. What do you see as the kind of relationship between perhaps this bill and something like the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act? I am just so happy you asked about it because uh, I think it's such a porous relationship between the two bills and the the broader issues. At Wednesday's hearing for the ADPPA, a number of members mentioned the problem of data purchases and that anyone, whether it's the highest bidder or someone else, uh, can buy Americans' data. Of course, that includes, as members said on Wednesday, the government itself, government agencies. We know that this is a common practice and it is a way for government agencies to circumvent court oversight and the Fourth Amendment. So hearing them say that on Wednesday was, I thought, really meaningful. And it, of course, then speaks to the hearing that happened the day before, Tuesday, as you mentioned. That hearing was on what's called digital dragnets and the ways that our data have really been kind of swept up by private companies, data brokers, and then can be sold to any number of entities. The bill in question, Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act, would close loopholes that allow our intelligence community, law enforcement to buy and acquire data um, in a number of ways. It would also prevent the government from buying data from Clearview AI, which we know has a strong relationship to many local police departments. It would extend privacy laws to infrastructure firms that own data cables and cell towers. And then it would do a number of other things that are really meaningful steps towards protecting against the purchasing by government of our data um, in ways that are unconstitutional. So what was meaningful in the hearing on Tuesday was that the witnesses themselves spoke to the relationship between data broker power and the, the problematic unconstitutional ways that government is buying our data and that there is then this sort of like flip side need for comprehensive privacy reform. It then quickly followed with the hearing on Wednesday. And so I hope these can be seen in many ways as sort of a one-two, not a one-two punch, but a one-two kind of protection for um, preventing the collection, retention, and then purchase of our data. And I feel one must happen um, with the other. And whichever can happen first, the conversation that members have, and frankly, that we have then with everyday people, has to be to educate and help them understand that these are inextricably linked. 
the phenomena that allow government to buy something about you when you have never given them consent to do so, when a court has no oversight over that action. And then that that data has been just rampantly collected by people who are selling it to anyone to make money. Um, Those are so linked to the problems that we've been talking about the rest of our time today. Yeah, I'll say um, Consumer Reports doesn't work on law enforcement government access issues. Um, but, but like Nora says, they are inextricably linked because where government often gets data or from the big companies, from ISPs, from, from Google. I'll say historically, I feel like government, government law enforcement access has been maybe a little bit less partisan um, a, a issue. Um, you know, Obama defended NSA and like there is like anti-government or more concerned about government stance from some Republicans because like, this very conservative Supreme Court has actually been fairly good on, on government privacy, like, you know, about, about cell phone tracking, uh, about, about uh, third-party doctrine. So um, again, I think historically it's been less partisan. I feel like the, the valence has switched a little bit now because um, there is more bipartisan agreement on commercial privacy issues. In the light of the Dobbs decision, though, I do think that there's going to be more, um, like Republicans be more interested in, in tracking uh, in government access to these stores. And so I think it's going to be harder to get bipartisan agreement on that. I've actually been a little bit surprised that the, uh, the, uh, the abortion access issue hasn't derailed more of the commercial privacy um, uh, uh, discussion um, because things are suddenly become more partisan, things become more heated, um, and there is more, um, if nothing else, is more angst, right? And that would make bipartisan staffers make it harder to to come to agreement on these issues. Um, Surprisingly, we haven't seen it. Again, I think because of of like the incredible work that the staff has done, um, keeping the the, the focus limited on, on the commercial issues. In practice, I mean, I, I think it would have a, 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 real, a real effect, you know, because of the, the, the data minimization framing, in theory, like selling to these data brokers should be prohibited. The bill has a weird structure that there is like in Section 206, this like big data broker registry and opt out process and like makes me wonder, like, isn't that why, why do data brokers still exist? Like, uh, and again, I think it's, it's somewhat because the bill is moving so quickly and, and like the, the, the provisions are changing. I'm not sure like why we need that. Um, or, or if, but again, if, if, if section 101, the data minimization really works, then I think there won't be these data stores in, in many cases, there'll certainly be a lot less of them for government to go to. Um, and again, like there, that may end up being something that come creeps into debate or that people in bad faith seek to leverage to derail the process as it does move along. But again, so far, um, it's, it's surpri- almost surprisingly, um, still very bipartisan agreement on the, on the commercial stuff. What happens now in the process? Uh, you know, you mentioned, Nora, that there's not a Senate companion yet. Clearly, there'll have to be one for this to advance. Um, what, what's the process from here? Someone said that, you know, this may come up for a vote very quickly, right? Yeah. Um, so like, so the House has, I think, like three working days left this summer. Um, so so they have to schedule it for like, I think, Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday of next week. Obviously, the, I think the, the folks who have wanted to run this process and who have moved it along very quickly are going to try to hit that. I think because there there was a lot of pushback from some the California Democrats on preemption saying, hey, I'm voting for this now. I'm not sure I'd vote for it in the future. They may need to get their ducks in a, in a row. Uh, and again, I'm sure they're hearing, you know, again, the, the substance changed a lot. You know, they've been hoping to have the, the markup they had this week, last week, but they had to delay it because they did get agreement on stuff. So a lot of moving pieces is also very limited floor time, right? You're, you're seeing, uh, you know, Pelosi is having votes on on gay marriage, on, on, on abortion access. Like there's, there's only so many like days, <laughs> like hours, uh, and, and all these processes take a while. So 
I think it would be hard to get it done in those three days. But I think, again, because it was such a successful markup, because um, there is such momentum behind it, I think it's a possibility. Um, the alternative, so they don't hit those three days, right? Then they have to wait till after Labor Day. Um, historically, getting things done after Labor Day in an election year is difficult. Um, as part of, and as Congress has become more partisan and more sclerotic, it was very hard. Um, but again, there is support. It's possible. They could still potentially um, move it in September, October. Um, you mentioned the Senate. Uh, Senator Cantwell um, is the chair of the Commerce Committee in the Senate. All roads go through her. She has been um, famously very <laughs> critical of this process. Originally, it was like a, they called it a four corners discussion. Um, the House um, Democrats and Republicans, Senate Democrats and Republicans. Um, at one point, um, Senator Cantwell bugged out and said, I'm not, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like this process. So now we call it the three cornered draft. I think if it, if, if it passes the House on a strong bipartisan basis, there is broad support for it from civil society and, and maybe the, the companies aren't screaming as they, as they aren't as much right now. Maybe there is pressure on her to do it. And obviously, I think Senator Schumer would like to show some victories going into the fall, um, going into uh, the, the midterms. And so I think like I think she's gettable, but she has to date been very skeptical about the text. But again, the text has changed a lot. And so, again, like I think on, on its merits, I think there's a much stronger case for moving it than there was a week ago. Nor anything, Dad. No, not, don't want to read the tea leaves. <laughs> well, secretly, I love reading tea leaves, but um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I worry that we just don't have a whole lot of time left. And I had a thought that you know, uh, if I could have been a creator of memes, I would have said members, they're just like the rest of us. Uh, because when we have a fire lit, and we feel the sense of we've procrastinated long enough, we got to get something done. I've done that with legal brief writing, I've done it, you know, in every aspect of my own life. I'm feeling now the real just ticking away of days. And I think Justin explained really well. One thing I don't know, uh, you know, maybe we're kind of going backwards, and it's too too detailed or, or small a point. But, you know, I was thinking a little bit about the relationship between all of the various bills here. And we haven't spoken about the, the social media aspect, the kind of like what platforms are doing themselves. And I don't think you can really look at the issue largely of what's happening online and its impact on our civil rights and the offline world without that. So, but there is that bundle of bills that attempt to increase transparency would attempt to provide and mandate disclosures from companies themselves. And the algorithms that gather data about us are themselves linked to what we're talking about today. So part of that is that we're seeing this pretty significant movement, even if not everything goes through, let's say, a full House or Senate hearing process, we are seeing a groundswell of members trying to move this work. And so I hope that you know, in whatever happens come no November, whatever the Congress ends up looking like, there is enough bipartisan support now in addressing these maligned forces that that momentum cannot and should not end. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's right to, to see this as, as, you know, privacy is just one piece of us rec uh, reckoning with um, the immense power these, these companies have over us. So there are like the two bipartisan competition bills that are being considered in the Senate. Um, there is like uh, the Algorithm Accountability Act. We've seen the various you know, bills on algorithms. Um, we did a Hill briefing on the Algorithm Accountability Act this week. Um, there are a lot of pieces of that actually included in Section 207 of this bill and the civil rights protections. Um, there's a lot of discussion about platform 
accountability, like the issue about, you know, what, what platforms do to kids. There's the age appropriate design code that is sailing through the California legislature, um, that have, have versions that have passed in the United Kingdom. So I think there's all sorts of bills that are being, uh, again, like all, often with broad bipartisan support because there is like a, like a, the, the zeitgeist is a recognition that we've let these companies have too much control over our lives, over our experiences. Um, and so, you know, I think privacy is in you know, some ways not the easiest um, because again, it's very visceral, the fact that all of our data, um, all of our web, you know, whatever we do online and offline um, is, is shared and sold and like, okay, yeah, we, 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 need, to, we need to control that. We need to, to, to lock that up. Um, but there's all sorts of things like, you know, addiction and what this does to teenagers and, and, and you know, Amazon now um, selling dangerous products, right? Like, you know, they, they become more of a third party marketplace with less control over it. There's less quality control. App stores taking, you know, 20% cut of everything we do through them. So there's all sorts of things that are being that we're finally seeing like momentum and like will to regulate in ways that we had not seen for like, you know, the first 20, 30 years of the Internet. Nora and Justin, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was fun. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests and thank you for listening. Press.